Hello, this is Liv Peterson from Starting Up Now. Thanks for joining us today on KMNP Shift. In this podcast, I have the opportunity to interview L. Brian Jenkins, author of No More Nonprofits, Moving from Dependency to Sustainability. In this episode, we will discuss the economic privilege within white evangelical circles, the problems with the nonprofit model in these circles, and solutions which include fresh perspectives and leadership. Take a listen and hope you enjoy KMNP Shift. Hello, Brian. How are you doing? Great. Good, good. Um, let's hop right into it. In the beginning of chapter four of your book, you kind of talk about your job hunting experience prior to entrepreneurity, to entrepreneurship. Tell us about that experience and why it's so important um, for you to have ownership. Sure. Um, yeah, this is a very interesting period in my in my life. So this is when Right before we launched Entrenuity, actually Entrenuity was launched in 99 and we we're still trying to figure out how I was going to use this, you know, seven or eight years of entrepreneurial education experience um, in getting a job. Not like a music teacher or math teacher where you can just go to some place and say, hey, you know, I'm going to apply for a math position. Mm-hmm. You know, still trying to figure things out, trying to make things work. And um, a, a large ministry reached out to me and said, hey, we believe that the entrepreneurship education has value in the urban context. Would you be interested in applying for a job? And then you could launch your, you know, further develop your entrepreneurship under our brand. Mm -hmm. And so it was very intriguing because at this time, you know, my, you know, my wife, you know, is working. My um, daughter's three and my son Braxton was just born in March of that year. So this ministry, you know, they continue to court me and, you know, I courted them back. And we go out to New York for their staff retreat. And it was great. You know, it was great to be a part of, of, you know, of something again to connect with other people that were like minded. And so they said to me, they said, hey, you know, everything that you need, we will provide as your startup. But at some point, you're going to need to be able to provide your own fundraising as well as the cost to get your quote unquote ministry off the ground. And so here we go back again to that fundraising model. That fundraising model has never really worked for me. You know, that's not something I was really interested in. And this is, you know, me looking back now, needing a job. You know, but knowing at the same time that if I had to fundraise again, I knew that model wasn't going to work. So what they said, they said, look, basically, they told me literally, we developed several different brands under our ministry. And they started mentioning some of these ministries and brands that I had no idea I heard of them. You know, we will help you get everything that you need launched, but we'll own it. And I was like, man, I mean, what kind of entrepreneurial model is that? Remember, this is in a nonprofit culture, so they would have complete ownership over my ideas. And understand, I did not have a job, you know, I had responsibilities, and so it was very attractive. So they would basically provide me with almost two to three years worth of upfront capital and a sense of support raising, all those things that I needed, but I would eventually have to gradually replace the funds that they provided with my own funders. And so I thought about it. I'm like, man, if I'm going to do all that, why don't I just have my own? You know? And so my wife and I thought about it. We prayed about it. And I basically pushed back from the table and said, thank you, but no, thank you. Mm -hmm. And so what they recognize is our credentials being both of my wife and I being African-American, 
familiar with the um, culture, but not necessarily down with the culture. You know, when I, when I say the culture, I'm talking about the evangelical culture. We, it's, it's kind of like we were familiar with it enough, but it really was not the value system that really attracted me. And so that was my first experience of saying where somebody liked my ideas, but wanted to take my idea and put their brand on it for almost no exchange of cash or value. And so that was another experience that helped push me, now looking back, really being thankful for the decision I made not to go in that direction. It's so interesting what you said about um, how they kind of wanted you to do the work. They wanted you to put in your ideas. They wanted you to bring everything to the table, but then they didn't want you to have any ownership or what they essentially wanted you to do the yeah. work for. Yeah, the exchange wasn't, the, the value exchange wasn't equal. You know, it's all this time, all this experience, but they would own the brand. That just didn't sit well with mm -hmm. me. Yeah. And um, kind of going into the next point, you mm -hmm. you think that this, I'm sure it happens a lot in nonprofit ministries and mm -hmm. in white evangelical circles. Mm -hmm. And what do you think is the biggest problem that most ministries have when it comes to leadership? Uh, talking with you before about transferring relationships in leadership. Mm -hmm. The challenge is they often are motivated to do good but they have their own model for what that good is. Mm -hmm. Most cases do not work or connect with the existing leadership that's already been there. There's been churches and ministries and organizations and groups and leaders that have been in place well before many of these ministries have come to the West and South side. So when they come, rather than working with existing leadership, they often set up their own entity away from that leadership, and they have an ability to raise funds because they're connected to several white funders who are not knowledgeable of the urban context, but will write them a check because they're there. And so with the exception of one or two people in the past almost 30 years, that's the standard operating procedure for most of these ministries. They don't connect they don't raise leaders to actually lead from the community because a lot of times, and then we, we know this, those relationships, especially when it comes to fundraising, do not always transfer over. Yeah. They will give to the leader who may be a white female or a white male, but those same donors oftentimes do not give to the same level or have the same trust factor in the black or Latinx leaders that emerge through that ministry. Now, the other aspect is this. There are leaders that are in ministries and churches that are already exist. Oftentimes, they don't work under those existing leadership structures, and that's a huge challenge. You know, with the exception of one or two ministries on the west side of Chicago that I'm familiar with, there's only one or two that have worked under the existing church leadership. They came in they did not start their own. They didn't create their own brand, their own following. They said, I'm going to work with this particular church. If they accept me, and if they accept me and I'll work under them, I will work under that leadership that already exists under their authority. And that is a very big challenge within the evangelical context because then you're not in control. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, in conversations before, um, you gave them an you gave an example of how when people do missions overseas, mm -hmm. um, they're required yes. to understand the culture. They're required to maybe even learn the language yes. and yeah. to take all this training. Yeah. And 
to really almost simulate themselves into that culture. Mm -hmm. But it's just interesting how in some white evangelical circles, Mm -hmm. when it comes to ministry, it's like, oh, I can just hop right Right. into this urban context and just know what to do or just take over. Yeah, it's an ongoing challenge, almost kind of like a missionary mindset um, in the sense that you've come, you've arrived, but you don't value the people, you don't value the the traditions, the culture. This is what my experience was when I, my first job out of Wheaton College. This is ministry I worked for in Humble Park. And I remember looking at the staff that was majority white um, at the time, Humble Park was pretty much, you know, a lot, lot of, you know, those communities, a lot of Puerto Rican, but also, you know, black as well. And very few of the people knew some of the traditions in that particular culture. One of the things I did, I did a survey, literally almost like your basic black history 101 type survey and passed it around to see how many people even knew some basic facts other than, you know, beyond surface, like, you know, more than who Dr. King was but maybe 10, 20 questions. I think maybe one or two people, maybe out of a staff of 30, might have passed that. Wow. And, I, and I was sitting there thinking, wow, you've come into this neighborhood, you've been ministering here for so long, including the executive director, he did not pass, you know, who the community that you're ministering in. What does that say? You know what I mean? What does that say when you're looking at it from a macro standpoint of how you view those that you want to serve. But if you are going overseas, you have to do a language class, a culture class, cooking classes. You have to know how the government works versus just saying, I'm here, I'm arrived. And because I have Jesus with me, that's going to trump any and everything else that's already taken place in this community because I'm here. Jesus has already been here before you were here. You know, we'll be here long after you decided to move on with your career. The thing is, is that that is more common than uncommon. And that's why I think that's one of the challenges with this system and these models that we've created to, quote unquote, help and serve in communities that we oftentimes label as distressed. Mm. And I think it's it's really interesting how you said that, like, you know, faith has already been here. Jesus has already been here before you you came in. You know, there's leadership already set up. There's people that are already, you know, boots on the ground have been working in these communities for years. And in your book on page 42, you Mm -hmm. say many non-Indigenous Caucasian-led urban ministries target a community with an entry plan, but without an exit strategy. There's almost never a plan to leave and transfer funding, relationships, networks, and power Mm -hmm. to the indigenous leaders in the communities Mm -hmm. served. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important and vital in the nonprofit world is to understand that Mm -hmm. you need to come underneath the community that's already in place. Mm -hmm. If you look into chapter four of Mm -hmm. your book, you have a number of different statistics and kind of analysis Mm -hmm. of evangelical urban ministry cultural challenges Mm -hmm. and kind of a summary of the challenges that you've seen in Chicago. Sure. Um, So kind of tell me some of those cultural challenges. Yeah, it's it's the idea of, I would say, the transfer of those relationships like you alluded to earlier. And one of those challenges are like, for example, I've been in a ministry or organization that I was a part of. I found out that, they had, that there was a meeting before the meeting, okay? And this this particular organization was doing conference-level work. We were traveling and doing things together. 
but I wasn't on the quote unquote inner circle. You know, I was always on the outside looking in. Um, They kind of treated me as if, hey, you should just be happy with your place that we're even letting you sit at the table, literally. And so on one of those occurrences, it was obvious that they had been somewhere together and they kept referring to the ranch. And I'm like, what ranch? You know, I mean, you know, there's time with the ranch, this, that and the other. And finally, I said, I just, you know, asked, I said, well, what, what, what are you talking about? And they had literally had pictures at President George, George Bush's ranch. And I didn't even know they went there, you know, and it really impacted me, you know, like, you know what? Again, they're not intending for me to be successful. Mm-hmm. They're not inviting me into their networks, you know, and sometimes it's brutally honest of how far I could actually go because they had placed limitations on me in the sense of who they were going to introduce me to. So while I should have been happy, and these are just, I'll just throw some fake numbers. Let's say I'm, you know, getting a check for being a part of this. And I was told, you know, hey, you know, you should be satisfied with the $50,000 that you're getting from working with us and all that, while they're getting checks of almost a million dollars. And that information was never disclosed to me. It was more or less like, you should be happy that you're here stay in your place, stay in your lane, don't push this. And But at the same time, these networks that they were connecting with, I was not being invited to that. I was only interacting with them. And then later in, in that particular chapter, I call it, I think I call it tier one relationships. One of the things that's very important for me is that you connect the donor or the investor directly with the person who is running the programs, not always the executive director. In many evangelical contexts, that's the white man or white woman, but they never speak directly to the person that's running the programs, the boots on the ground. Therefore, that relationship always remains segmented. And so the challenge is, is that if you're intentional about transferring and training leaders, you want to take those relationships and connect them to the to the donor tier one to tier one, not tier one to tier two. Leaders talk to leaders. You know, decision makers talk to decision makers. If you're in a position where you're not actually talking to the person who makes the decision, then you're in a tier two relationship. And that's one of the challenges that I see that continues to persist because those relationships are not intentionally transferred. And that's one of the things that I'm proud of with the network of people that I have that support our work. I have their numbers, literally, I think I've had dinner with all of them and their families. And we have a direct one-on-one relationship that's beyond just an investor donor, but it's a friendship. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying that you have to be friends with everybody, but you do need to be able to make sure that person that's running the community program that might be from the community has that relationship with that person who's actually supporting the work. And if not, then you need a new model for your own sustainability. Because what happens is once the leadership transfers and they're dependent upon that relationship, the funds often transfer, they often stop because that donor oftentimes is writing that particular check or that level of support to that person he has relationship with. So if he doesn't have a relationship with a program officer, guess what? More than likely, that check might disappear. Mm-hmm. Not right away, but business is relationship-based. And entrepreneurs, I'm sorry, and giving and fundraising within the nonprofit structure is also relationship-based. 
People give to people that they know and they give to people that they trust. Mm, That's good. And I think um, in your book, you talk about solution based goals Mm -hmm. when it comes to people that are seeking to provide financial resources Mm -hmm. to assist their ministry efforts. Mm -hmm. Um, Number one, unlock access to potential investors via ministry pitch events, Mm -hmm. connect urban churches, ministries with mentors. And if you, uh, you know, get this book, you'll be able to see more practical ways that Uh, Brian has laid out you to be able to make that happen. Um, And in discussing the solution and discussing the importance of relationships, Mm -hmm. um, you talk a little bit about uh, the 990 and making sure uh, that people are able to research 990s to know where they give. Can you kind of give some insight on that? Yeah, your 990, think about it from a practical standpoint, is the ministry's tax return every 501c3 organization, um, not necessarily a ministry, but usually, you know, ministry, but not churches, but a ministry and, a, and nonprofits must submit a 990. Think of it as the income tax report for the organization. So one of the things that I did years ago, being extremely frustrated, and truth be told, the book started out as no more, K-N-O-W, no more nonprofits. I was done with this model. I was sick of it. Um, I had just experienced a pretty challenging situation at a large, another again, another large gathering of ministries and found out that a particular ministry leader had directed somebody who was interested in connecting with me from Entrenuity about our work. This ministry leader redirected them to someone else. Mm-hmm. Literally, because we had a contract, we were doing some entrepreneurship training with this particular group. This ministry leader literally said, Brian works for me. And if you want to learn more about Brian and his work, come talk to me. And when I found that out, a friend, so we had some, I had some friends of mine that were sitting in the back and heard the conversation. I was presenting at the top of the room. So some friends were that heard this conversation and they were completely, you know, upset, you know, with what, what they heard and what took place because a person literally went and listened to this other person. And so that's where I said, you know what, this model sucks. You know, I'm, I'm done with this. You know, why am I still trying to do what I'm doing where we're not getting the proper respect? We cannot continue to pursue this particular model. These networks, these relationships must be transferred. So I started researching 990s. So a 990 is public information. So I literally started looking at the top ministries, not churches, ministries and nonprofits that were actually receiving funds. And I started taking these 990s and basically evaluating them and determined that in t- between 2012 and 2013, that 96%, almost $30 million of all donations that came in for white-led ministries that were in the black and brown context and the urban context went to white-led ministries. Mm. Blew me away, you know, and I was like, man, that is incredible. That means that these, these ministries, that black and brown ministries that were in the neighborhood, that had been there for 30, 50 years, they did not have the direct relationships they weren't being involved with the events. A lot of these events were being held and they didn't even know that they were taking place to the extent where 96% of all funding for that year 
that went to white led ministries that were essentially doing the same thing that black and brown ministries had already been doing for years. Mm -hmm. Then I broke it down and said, wait, this is incredible. I started looking at the various education levels. I, I looked at how many lived in the community, how didn't all this information in this particular chapter. And I said, this model cannot work and it's intentional. You know, I was not invited once and that, that was my learning lesson. But when you start seeing the data that came out of this and I started presenting this to people and I said, there needs to be a complete change in the sense of, you know, ministries, nonprofits need to begin to sustain themselves. Mm -hmm. I realized that this model, rather than begging to have a seat at the table, let's create the dog on table itself. You know, I don't want to be invited if I'm not wanted. Let's be entrepreneurial. Let's be innovative. Let's solve our own problem by creating new models of sustainability. And one of those, obviously, is business ownership. Mm. And I think, uh, like you said, creating the table yourself, not just being there to receive, you know, the scraps or, or the leftovers. Yes. Um, and in thinking about uh, white-led ministries that are coming into neighborhoods and are coming in and essentially are doing the same things that have already been done mm -hmm. or doing the same things that Black-led ministries are already doing but mm -hmm. just not receiving the funding, yeah. um, you kind of also talk about mm -hmm. there needs to be a shift in um, a marketing strategy yes. in the way that children are exploited yes. or maybe the way that their Black children or sure. Latinx children are seen or exploited for the gain of the ministry. Absolutely. Yeah, one of the things that really, really uh, bothers me are a, a good friend of mine came up with a term of the, you know, Dear Willie Letters. And it, what they do, a marketing strategy, is that they'll take a child, um, oftentimes you know, a young person, someone that's in their ministry, you know, and they will spotlight all the challenges that this person, that this young man or this young woman may have. They'll reinforce stereotypes that already exist mm -hmm. primarily in their predominantly white-led funders' minds. And instead of telling stories that honor and respect this person, these stories are often made up that basically show that the ministry is this great savior. Mm -hmm. And that's something that oftentimes is done, you know, at the discredit of those that they're seeking to serve. One of the things that I've always said is that for entrepreneurity, especially when it comes to youth and families, if we put out a story, we always let the person we're writing about have full editorial privileges. Meaning if they don't like what we wrote, I mean, we, we interview them, they're involved with it and they're part of it. But if there's something that they do not like or they want to change or don't want said, we will change it. We will not put it out there on you know, in our newsletters and our stories and social media. That's one of the things that is extremely important to me is that, that we don't market people's challenges. Mm -hmm. And I understand many of these ministries, that's their strategy. You know, I confronted a ministry leader one time about this. And, and this person told me that's her way of raising money. There was a one, they, they always have a, um, this particular Chicago based ministry had an annual fundraising dinner. And they intentionally dress the kids up in very ethnic dress mm -hmm. and had these young people running around being table hosts. And the parents, if I'm not mistaken, the parents were not even allowed to come. And I was, and it, and it was just like, man, I would never allow my children 
And most of the people that I know that are black or brown would never allow their children to be, you know, manipulated and exploited and marketed in this way. The challenge is, though, is this, is that when you are a recipient of those benefits of the ministry, you have less ground to speak on. If your kids are benefiting from it, what are you going to say? You know, we don't want these services. You know, we don't need these things. You have less of a position. But those who have some level of economic stability would never, ever allow their children to be basically marginalized and mismarketed in this way. You know, the stories are there, you know, and every and this is not related to just ministries. You see this happening late at night on TV when you see these info commercials about supporting great works and they'll put a child on TV, you know, and, and the kid looks they may look rough, but people do not want their children presented in a non-dignified way. As long as I run entrepreneurity, as long as I have a voice of entrepreneurity, we will never allow someone's child to be exploited in order for the ministry to gain. Many times the ministries often have a white person in the savior complex, and that's really, really debilitating, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I would not allow my kids to do that or would not allow my kids to be used in that way. And other ministries and other organizations should not exploit other people's challenges for their benefit. I, I joked one time with our uh, graphic designer. Um, I said, we should create a separate ministry, a fake ministry or fake organization in which I would be the savior to people, let's say, in Appalachia. And I would, ex- you know, I would tell all the challenges. Imagine a black man reaching out, moving to Appalachia. The only thing I know is the language, but I don't know the culture. And if I wanted to start a organization there to help you know, poor white kids in Appalachia, what would that look like? Most people who are poor, they they have dignity. You know what I mean? We have a way of vilifying and portraying the poor as if they're a subset of people. And that's something that, yeah, we, we need to get past that, you know, and, but it all depends on how you value and how you view people. I mean, earlier we talked about black humanity. If you value people as they are, then you won't exploit them for your purposes. Mm -hmm. And especially when your purposes are, they don't even have any direct benefit from it. It benefits the organization. It doesn't benefit them. It might benefit them in a program, but they have very little to no say so about, you know, the long-term impact of that. And most ministries that I'm aware of, particularly here in Chicago that are evangelical, um, have done this, you know, um, in most situations. And I think um, kind of closing out this episode of this podcast, you mm-hmm. have a great quote at the end of this chapter that says, um, being black and human forces America to rethink and reimagine its promise to all of its citizens. Mm-hmm. And I think that if, um, you know, white-led ministries are going to change, they mm-hmm. have to change their perspective one thing I would recommend, be invited. Don't just come. When you come to somebody's house for dinner, you you just don't show up at the door. You're usually invited. And if you're invited, you don't come in and put your feet up on somebody's, you know, table. That's something that's a pet peeve of mine. You know, even in Overflow and our <laughs> in our uh common cup uh, uh restaurant, we we have these tables and people, you know, love to put their feet up on the table with it, you know, and I'm like, that just bothers me. You don't come into somebody's house without respecting those who are in charge of that house. You greet somebody and you're usually directed to the living room or until you're over for dinner, you know, if it was a dinner type deal, 
you get to know the people by invitation only usually. The challenge, I think, with a lot of times with nonprofits, uh, particularly with ministries, is that they just show up. If we're going to change our model, then we need to look at another way of sustainability because I do not think this model is going to change overnight. But I certainly believe that that ministry, that organization, that nonprofit can say, you know what? I'm not going to follow that model anymore to depend upon funding. Maybe I should start creating something that I can that can generate revenue of my own. And that's a whole new paradigm shift. Thanks again for joining us today on KMNP Shift, where we discuss the unseen and unspoken barriers you must overcome to do your job. We are always happy to hear from you, so please reach out to us at www.entrenuity.com. Interested in booking a workshop on this content? Email us at info at Follow us on all social media channels at Entrenuity. And don't forget to grab a copy of your book, No More Nonprofits Moving from Dependency to Sustainability, available on Amazon. Until next time, this is your host, Liv Peterson with KMNP Shift.